This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 334th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new abelosaurid from Patagonia. Ooh. And we have dinosaur of the day, Urketu, or maybe Urketu, depending on how much emphasis you want to put on the second syllable. Syllable. <laughs> well, that's what the emphasis on the second syllable. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we have a fun fact. But before we get into all of that, Really quick, we want to thank some of our patrons, and this week we have two new patrons to thank, and they are Sophie and Shane Kylosaurus. Shane said I could call them Shane or Shane Kylosaurus if I was fancy, and I declared I am fancy, mm-hmm. so Shane Kylosaurus it is. Plus, it's an ankylosaur, so why why wouldn't I? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. The rounding out our shoutouts are Sorian Brandy, Stego Sophie, Paula Canthus, Kyle, Arlo Soros, the Georges family, Rohan, and Richard. Awesome. Thank you so much for being our patrons. Again, we couldn't do this show without you, so we really appreciate all of your support and hope you enjoy all of the rewards. Like we talk about our Discord a lot, see more people on there, which is really cool. So if you want to join our growing community of dinosaur enthusiasts, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Dino. We've got a follow-up from one of our listeners this week, from Bruce, who told us after listening to last week's episode about the cannibalistic tyrannosaurs and specifically the holes in the jaw. Or the hole in the jaw that got punctured all the way through, presumably by being bitten in the face by another tyrannosaur. Yep. <laughs> So Bruce has a friend who had a cream lab puppy who tried to get an older dog's food. The two dogs lived together. And the older dog bit the puppy hard enough to knock out a tooth and, as Bruce said, wait for it, left a hole in the jaw. Luckily, the dog has recovered, but the hole is still there and partially healed. Just like the tyrannosaur. It's so crazy. I mean, dogs do have strong bite forces, but I didn't realize they were strong enough to bite holes through each other's bones when they still had meat on those bones. And that puppy has never gone for the wrong food bowl since. (laughs) Is that what they said? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's great. But also kind of traumatic and terrible. But I'm glad that the dog has healed and is doing better now. Well, yeah, Bruce sent us a picture and the dog looks very happy. That's good. Dogs are very resilient that way. They lose limbs and they seem to not even notice. So what's a pesky one little hole in a jaw? That's nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But that's really interesting because I had assumed this was some kind of crazy thing that only would happen with something like a tyrannosaur with that really strong bite force and those extra sharp teeth and everything. 
but I guess, you know, the jawbone scale with the size of the bite force of the jaw. So any animal that's biting another animal in the face, mm -hmm. maybe if it has sharp enough teeth, can do something like this. Just glad humans don't do this. Yes. I've never been bitten on my jaw. I don't think period and definitely not strong enough bite to cause any damage. Thanks for that feedback. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And on to our new news, new old news. New prehistoric news. There you go. That's a good name for it. The first piece we have is that new Abelosaurid, which seems to be a pretty close relative to Carnotaurus, actually, as a lot of Abelosaurids are, I guess. But this one was written by Federico Giannaccini and others and published in JVP. As expected for an Abelosaurid, it's a carnivorous bipedal theropod. It was found in the New Ken province in Argentina, specifically Patagonia, the place that I was rambling about the other day. This one was in the Bajo de la Carpa formation, which puts it in the Santonian or about 85 million years ago, plus or minus one or two million years, which means it's quite a bit earlier than Carnotaurus, hmm. but still sort of in the normal range for an abelosaurid. Its full name is Leucalcan aliocranianus, and Leucalcan is Mapudungan for, quote, one who scares or causes fear. Oh, yeah, quote. that was all over the headlines. The dinosaur who causes fear. I mean, that seems like a very general term that you could use for basically any theropod that's dog-sized or larger mm -hmm. <laughs> would cause fear, I think, considering they had the sort of attitude where they would bite holes in each other's faces. You know, that's it's fear-causing. True. But if it's <laughs> one of the bigger ones in the ecosystem. Yeah, this. I mean, this one was only about 16 feet long, so... It might not have, I don't know. It doesn't seem particularly scary. Nothing about it seems all that scary. But yeah, I mean, as far as a 16 foot long carnivorous, probably fast moving animal, we would definitely cause some fear. So mm -hmm. I guess it's fair. And then the species name I should also mention, Aleocranianus, I guess, is different skull in Latin. So it's all about the skull. And based on the skull, we think it would cause a lot of fear. I suppose. I don't know. It seems like the reason they named it Different Skull was because the skull is different <laughs> than other abelosaurs. But I mean, they only found a skull and that's how you define a new species. So it seems a little bit redundant to say like, we found the skull and it's different. And therefore we're going to name it a new species. Why don't we just call it Different Skull? Mm, it's not the first <laughs> time a dinosaur has gotten a name like that. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but it's kind of fun. I, I like the Lucalcan if I'm saying that correctly, I don't speak Mapuche, so that's my best guess. But the find is pretty good. They did find a good portion of the skull. It's probably easier to say what they didn't find. So they found most of the skull, except for the quadrato jugal, which is sort of the back bottom part where the jaw attaches. And then also they're missing part of the front of the snout and some of the maxilla and premaxilla. That's still pretty good. Yeah, it's it's not bad. They also found a tiny fragment of the jaw because technically the jaw, the dentary, is not really the skull. The skull's like the upper part, but it's such a tiny little piece. It's sort of the back bottom of the jaw, so it doesn't have any teeth in it, and it doesn't seem like it was all that useful for them. So what they did find was a single piece from the nasal to the squamosal, which is a pretty big piece. It's all fused together, and that's sort of like the top of the snout back to around the eye and sort of the back of the head, that piece, minus the quadrato jugal and a little bit in the front. 
it's a little bit more complete on the right side than the left side so it's not all of that material but you know since it's symmetric we don't necessarily need both sides to know what it looked like and luckily there's also a big piece of maxilla which includes quite a few teeth in it that's the fear causing parts <laughs> all the teeth yeah they're large and serrated they didn't get talk too much about the teeth but they look like typical abelosaurid teeth i would say so they're you know a couple inches long several inches long if you include the root and serrated so yeah Definitely something you wouldn't want to be near if you have soft parts. Which most animals do. Yes. Not ankylosaurs. I think ankylosaurs might have been okay around this thing. And not the belly part. But you can't get to it. Mm. That's all. Remember the digging? Right, right. <laughs> but then they also found a quote-unquote possible premaxilla with one tooth in place. And weirdly, that's the picture they chose for the Wikipedia page. It's just this one little piece. So when I first saw it on there, I was like, oh... It's another one of those dinosaurs that was described based on just one tiny piece of a jaw or something. But really, that back of the head part is way more impressive and has way more information in it. But it doesn't have a big fun tooth sticking out of it. So I guess <laughs> in that way, it's not quite as exciting. And I think they call it a possible premaxilla because they're not certain that it's part of the maxilla or premaxilla. I think it could technically be in either one because it's in kind of rough shape. But they are pretty certain that it is from the holotype so it's not like oh we found this other thing and it could be from some other animal which is what i thought at first when it was like possibly a premaxilla mm. the most important thing about this find is that they got a really good view of the brain endocast and inner ear by ct scanning cool yeah i always like it when they do these ct scans you can see all these details about it the whole Skull is about 40 centimeters or 15 inches long, but again, it's missing the front of the snout. And in their reconstruction, it looks like it might be like 80% complete. So it's still talking about a head that's less than two feet long. So it's not a huge theropod. Like I said, the whole animal is about 16 feet long, but yeah, still enough to be scared of, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever human. come face to face with one, then I'll ask you if you're scared. Well, I think the titanosaurs that were around at the time and the other animals that were around to be afraid of it mm -hmm. may not have been as afraid of it as, say, like a Carnotaurus or a Giganotosaurus, all those things. Any young, small animal, like a young titanosaur, could still be afraid. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. The authors do also say that it's probably a subadult and it could be a younger form of an existing genus. Oh, because and then the skull would have changed enough. Yeah, it theoretically could change enough so that it would look like an existing genus when it was fully grown. But the types of differences in the skull, they don't think are the kinds of things that would change. It's not like there are unfused bones or things like that. It's more like there are little divots and ridges and really subtle things that were hard to spot in their pictures I'm sure if you're holding the bone in front of you, it's more obvious, but like they were labeling this one spot, which is called the caudal tympanic recess. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like deep inside, sort of like where the inner ear is, but not quite on the inside. And it's just like this little speck on the picture where you can barely see it. So apparently that is a hollow spot in the skull, which is more common in celurosaurs. So it is pretty unique to... Lucalcan compared to some of the other abelosaurids is just to a non-paleontologist it looks a lot like other abelosaurids mm. if it is from an existing genus the most likely one is via venator or via venator 
which was found in the same formation. It was actually only found about half a mile away. So they're very close, mm-hmm. physically speaking. Could have been friends. Yeah. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. And I mean, they are in the same formation, so they were around the same age. So I guess theoretically, they could have been around at the exact same time. And if they're half a mile away, maybe they ran into each other once in a while. But usually large carnivores of different species or even the same species aren't best of friends. So, Yeah. Who knows? I probably shouldn't speculate anymore about this because we're going off into left field. But unfortunately, for the comparison purposes, not all the bones overlap. Specifically, the maxilla, we just don't have it for Viavenator. So there's nothing to compare. And a lot of the skull does look pretty similar. Hashtag need more fossils. Yes, very much so. The description of the brain case to me was especially funny because they essentially just said, is basically the same as Viavenator. Mm. Their brain cases look super similar. It probably had a good sense of smell because it has this big olfactory bulb and it's pretty common for theropods. They also said the inner ear is, quote unquote, not different than other abelosaurids. <laughs> so there's not a lot to go on there. But again, that caudal tympanic recess is one of the key differences. They said that it might show a quote, different hearing adaptation, end quote. I wonder what that means. Yeah, me too. Especially, I mean, the inner ear is more for balance than hearing, but I guess maybe this is related to the outer ear somehow. I don't know. It was so hard to see on that picture where exactly it is, but I presume if it's related to hearing, it must be in the outer ear because that's the part that does the hearing. And I did see an article written by NPR where the authors were interviewed and they said it might have a better sense of hearing than its relatives. Mm-hmm. So maybe this... Pick up some more frequencies or can sense more things. Yeah, that's what they were saying. So it had a larger range of hearing, which would be more frequencies than other abelosaurids potentially. And they were even postulating like maybe it could hear prey better. That would be a reason to be afraid. Yeah, I suppose. But we can hear more frequencies than almost any dinosaur could. Mm. So they should be afraid of us. <laughs> Plus, we have weapons, but... (laughs) Some birds are afraid of us. It's true. All of them that know what's good for them, I guess, (laughs) or that are tasty, or they're extinct if they weren't afraid of us, I suppose. Yeah. Some birds have no reason to be afraid of us, but anyway. Yeah. But in previous articles, when we've talked about larger ranges of hearing or different frequencies, the general topic that comes up is that those are probably the range of vocalizations that those similar dinosaurs made. So I think you might also be able to say that maybe Lucalcan vocalized in a different frequency range than other similar abelosaurids. And it might make sense if they look really similar and you can't see a lot of differences from the outside. It's nice to be able to make some sounds (laughs) so you can identify your conspecifics. As far as their phylogeny went, it's not super useful since We don't have all that much overlapping material with some of the similar dinosaurs, but it is enough to know that it's in the subgroup of Abelosauridae called Furilusauria, I think. I've never heard this word actually pronounced before. It could be like Furilusauria or something like that. It means stiff-backed lizards in, again, Mapudungan. And yeah, it's just, it's hard to find pronunciation guides for Mapudungan, which is the Mapuche language. But that is why it sounds so much different than tetanere, which means stiff tail in Greek. Because mm. <laughs> when I saw that, and I was like, it means stiff-backed lizards. It looks nothing like the other stiffed thing. So I guess 
technically a furlusorian is a tetanurin, which means it's both stiff-tailed and stiff-backed. It's a lot of stiffness. It is, yeah. But that's the group that includes Carnotaurus, as well as several other abelosaurids. But again, Carnotaurus is at least 10 million years after Leucalcan, so it's probably not closely related, although it might be closely related to something like Via Venator. And then the moral of the story basically is that the late Cretaceous of Patagonia probably was pretty packed with different abelosaurids because we're up to a total of about 10 abelosaurids discovered in Patagonia just in the last 15 million years of the Cretaceous. I guess that makes sense if they evolved in a way that was working. Yeah. I'm thinking of it kind of like all the ceratopsians that you see in Utah Mm -hmm. or all those small feathered dinosaurs that you see in Northeast China. You have these little microcosms of fossils where it's like we see a ton of them just from like a small group of dinosaurs in the same space. And we definitely see it today too with birds. There are all sorts of birds that are closely related all over the place. And up next, we've got an article written by Nagolnik and Kulashov from the Geological Institute of Russian Academy of Sciences. And basically what they were doing was looking at the climate of late Cretaceous Mongolia, which is something we've talked about quite a bit, so I figured it was worth mentioning. Mm Mm-hmm. Basically, what they were doing was they were looking at eggshells and carbonate soil from the Bayan-Zak section of the Jadokta formation, which is, again, about 72 to 75 million years ago. And it had all sorts of awesome dinosaurs like Protoceratops and a whole bunch of different Oviraptorosaurs, also Troodontids and probably some Tyrannosaurs. Lots of interesting stuff over there. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly buried in sandstone. And in the past, we've said... It's in sandstone, and right now, a lot of Mongolia is sandy. So we often say that, like, oh, the ecosystem hasn't changed that much relative to other places like Hell Creek, where back then they were like a rainforest and it was super wet, but now it's super barren and badlandsy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mongolia was sandy, and it's still sandy. But we haven't really talked about, like, what the temperature was like. So... What these researchers were doing to figure that out is they were looking at carbon-13 isotopes and oxygen-18 isotopes. And the reason those are isotopes is because the atomic mass of carbon is usually 12 and oxygen is usually 16. But it's not like carbon-14 where it's radioactive and it decays over time and then you can figure out how old something is, something to that effect. Carbon-13 and oxygen-18 are also completely stable and non-radioactive But the concentrations do vary in the environment depending on the temperature, which is sort of the key here, and also depending on how wet things are. So what does that all mean? So basically, (laughs) Mongolia, back when these fossils were formed, about 74 plus or minus a couple million years, was warm in the winter and hot in the summer. And they think it rained a maximum of two months of the year, probably in the winter, And they say it was probably about 40 centimeters or 16 inches of rain maximum. Compared to today, it's cold in the winter and still pretty cold in the summer. (laughs) It's not particularly warm in the summer in Mongolia, but it is still quite dry. So it is sort of similar in that it's dry and sandy, Mm -hmm. but in terms of the temperature and in terms of the plants that were there, it could actually be a fair amount different. It sounds kind of like California today. Warm in the winter, hot in the summer, not much rain. Yes, 
that is pretty California, especially Southern California. Mm -hmm. And they talk about some of like the scrub brush and stuff they found evidence of with like fossilized roots. And that's very much like chaparral in California. I think that's a pretty good comparison. Except it might not be quite as sandy here as it is there. Also, there aren't any dinosaurs here. What, there's birds? <laughs> Touche. <laughs> no big carnivorous dinosaurs. That's good. Yeah. Makes the day-to-day -day a little easier. It does. I did find out one interesting thing when I was looking at this because I thought 40 centimeters of rain, like, is that a lot or a little bit? And I thought I had remembered that you need about a foot of rain to be considered a desert, or if you're under a foot, it could be considered a desert. But apparently that isn't necessarily the case. So most deserts get less than 20 centimeters or eight inches of rain a year. But there are deserts today that get twice that amount. The reason that they're still deserts is that it's a really short rain season. And since it's so dry, all the water evaporates really quickly and keeps it arid. So really the better definition for a desert is that it's an environment that holds very little moisture. A dry heat. Yeah, basically. Like Arizona. Yes. So part of Arizona, the southern part of Arizona and California, including like Death Valley, is considered a hot desert. And then if you get up into the mountains, you also have cold deserts in parts of Arizona and California. It looks like based on the map. It doesn't have state lines, so I'm not positive. But I think it's probably more accurate, like the authors called it, to refer to this ancient ecosystem in Mongolia as semi-arid, because again, it looks kind of like California. Mm -hmm. It seems like a lot of the climates that we've talked about that dinosaurs lived in were semi-arid, classified as semi-arid. Oh, I don't remember that. I do. It's one of the words that pops up most frequently for me. Is it when you're talking about Mongolian dinosaurs? Uh, not just Mongolian dinosaurs, a lot of dinosaurs. Maybe in Patagonia too. Anywhere that's in sandstone, I presume, might be semi-arid at the very least, if not just straight up arid. Although arid places often don't fossilize that well because it's useful to have a little bit of moisture to sort of preserve the fossils. Not too much moisture, though, because then stuff rots. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the exact spot that they're testing in Mongolia today is considered a cold desert climate, whereas it was a warm, semi-arid climate back then. But there are parts of Mongolia that are considered semi-arid today, just a little bit farther north outside of the desert. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. 
and dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. In another part of Asia, specifically China, Fujian province, scientists have found in some articles they called it a quote-unquote dinosaur dance floor. Like a mating display? Are there scrape marks? I don't think so, at least not based on what we know so far. But maybe there are a lot of tracks. They're still uncovering tracks. Like over 600 footprints have been found. They're expecting to find more than 1,000. Wow, that's pretty solid. Yeah. So we've actually talked about this story before because the footprints were first found in November And at the time, 240 were identified, and they found a whole bunch more now. Yeah. (laughs) So these footprints, they come from the late Cretaceous about 80 million years ago. They're in an area less than 100 square meters, and they include footprints from sauropods and theropods. And some of the footprints are small. They are less than four inches or 10 centimeters long. Mm. I guess that's why it's a dance floor, because there's so much foot traffic happening in a relatively small space. Yeah. So what they're thinking right now is that the dinosaurs were roaming or there was water nearby. Yeah, that makes sense, especially because that's a lot of times where footprints preserve anyway. Mm-hmm. So no official papers about this yet. They're probably waiting till they get all thousand plus tracks. Yeah, that will be quite a paper, I'm sure. Be interesting if they can see anything like sometimes they have evidence of something following something else. Oh, that'd be great. But if it, I'm kind of imagining if there's that many prints in one place. How do you know it's the same prints following? Yeah, them? it just sounds like a mess. Like there's just going to be so much chaos going on that maybe the best they can do is just say like, well, we've got evidence of six different sauropod track makers and 15 different theropods or whatever. You know, I was thinking it could be a fun game is if you made a kind of twister game based on dinosaur footprints, trackways. How would that work? I don't know. I I was actually just thinking like, or you could recreate your own version of a dinosaur dance following the footprints. Yeah, you could. That's an idea for your TikTok. Well, I don't have any dinosaur tracks near handy, so. Most of them are just like big steps walking. I think you could pull it off. (laughs) (laughs) There's an idea. So the next thanks to our listeners who shared this one with us on the Yorkshire coast of England. The largest dinosaur footprint in that area was recently found. It's a three-toe print, so it's a theropod. It was found by Marie Woods, an archaeologist, who found it when she went to collect shellfish for dinner. Interesting. Yeah. I think it, I mean, there are other dinosaurs that have three toes too, like ornithopods and stuff. Yeah, but they think this one's a carnivorous dinosaur up to 30 feet or nine meters long. Okay. 
Yeah, sometimes you can tell based on the shape of the toes and the angle between them and stuff. Yeah, they're saying maybe it's Megalosaurus. Wow, they're really going out there. That's a maybe. Definitely That's a maybe. A maybe. <laughs> it, technically, this is a rediscovery because this footprint was partially spotted in November by Rob Taylor. How do you partially spot a footprint? I think the weather wasn't great or you just see a little bit. And now there's plans to excavate it and put it on display at the Rotunda Museum in Scarborough. Because according to Marie Woods, the fossil is in a, quote, fragile state and could be, quote, lost to the sea. Oh, no. Yeah. Don't want that. So you got to carve it out. Yes. Otherwise, you got to do a real quick mold of it. So moving to another part of Europe, the Naturalist Biodiversity Center in the Netherlands recently made a really cool 3D printed mount of their T-Rex Trix. So they printed it last year. And then I guess they mounted it recently. There's a really cool time-lapse video about one minute long that shows it being assembled. It's 41 feet or 12 and a half meters long, and it weighs 660 pounds or 300 kilograms. So is this, this is just the entire dinosaur. They just recreated the entire thing and 3D printing version? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. So what they did was they scanned each bone, and then they modeled their missing bones. And then a team from Naturalist Biodiversity Center and the Leiden School for Instrument Makers worked together to assemble these bones into a kit so that it's actually made of like 50 larger parts instead of hundreds of parts because the plan is for this 3D print to be displayed at the Dinosaur Museum of Nagasaki in Japan. And they're the ones over there who are going to need to finish the assembly. So that's why they wanted uh, to ship it in kits. So they they did a test assembly of it, and then they're going to take it apart and then reassemble it in Japan? I think so. I mean, because the time-lapse video, it looks like a complete skeleton. Interesting. And the Dinosaur Museum of Nagasaki is a new museum that's opening in October of this year. Oh, cool. Yeah, when you mentioned 3D printing it and that they were assembling it into kits... I was imagining like we could order a kit, like <laughs> anybody can order a kit, put together your own T-Rex. <laughs> maybe not this one. It wouldn't fit. 41 feet is <laughs> large. Yeah. Maybe if we got, <laughs> they assemble it into a kit, maybe we can take part of the kit. <laughs> yeah. Get the head or something. <laughs> Just the skull. Yeah, yeah. That's what people normally do when they have small spaces. Or the hands. T-Rex hands aren't really what they're known for. True. It is about the skull. <laughs> so the original Trix is still in the Netherlands at the Naturalist Biodiversity Center. And Trix was found in Montana in 2013 in the Hell Creek Formation. And Trix is over 30 years old. I mean, technically over 67 million years old, but you know. It was 30 years old when it died. Yes. It's the third most complete T-Rex found so far. It's at between 75 and 80% complete. And it includes the wishbone, which is apparently a rare find. Nice. The skull's intact. It's only missing the tip of the snout and the front lower jaws. It's got a lot of pathologies that seems to be common in a lot of the T-Rex specimens. Yeah. There's bite traces. It's, there's recovered bite wounds and scratch marks on the jaw, though I didn't read about any holes in the jaw. And some of these pathologies happened just a few weeks before it died. Oh, and there's also broken and healed ribs. It may not be a coincidence that some of those injuries were a few weeks before it died. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
There's also this uneven development in the sacrum and the first tail vertebra, which they think could be an injury when that happened when it was young or it could be a birth defect. So Trix <laughs> has had a lot of nicknames. It's been called Murray T-Rex, presumably because it was found by the Murrays. That's that couple who argued that fossils weren't minerals. Mm, yeah. It's also been called Grand Old Lady and Grandma Pussface because of its age and face injuries. The opinion seems to be that it's a female T-Rex, and the theory is because it's got a robust build and that uh, more robust T-Rex were female, yeah. and it's got a large post-orbital boss, the lump coming out from behind the eye. I know, I knew you were going to say that. I couldn't find too mm. much additional information on this. Yeah, we've uh, there's been very loose work on that, but a lot of people don't buy it. Yeah, it's just definitely debated. Yeah. The idea was something like Sue seems a little bit more robust than some of the other T-Rex and there might be some medullary bone there. So they try to like extrapolate that into two types. But it reminds me of like the the wide walking sauropods versus the narrow gait sauropods. Mm -hmm. And then they found out like, oh, well, actually, sometimes sauropods just walk differently depending on the sediment or when they're like turning and things. Yeah. And so it's the same kind of like... Yeah, there could be individual variations, could be a different species. It's the whole sexual dimorphism thing. We can't even figure it out for coelophysis that we have like 200 of. Yeah. There's no way with T-Rex we've got it figured out yet. No, but that's just kind of how it got these nicknames. Gotcha. It's also been called the Night Watch of Natural History and the Mona Lisa of Naturalis because of its smile. I guess smile is one word for a skull full of teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the official name, though, is Trix, and it came about because the museum asked the public in the Netherlands to suggest a name, and the name alludes to T-Rex and former Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands. So Trix is also sometimes known as the Queen of the Cretaceous. Mm, I like that, because of the Rex meaning king. Mm -hmm. It's nice. Now for some news in the U.S. In Springfield, Missouri, the Missouri Institute of Natural Science is having a raptor run. It's pretty far into the future. It's June 11th from 6 to 9 p.m. But, you know, maybe you need to, you got plenty of time to warm up your muscles. To train. Yeah. Train. Thank you. That was the <laughs> word I was going for. <laughs> I'm not used to hearing like late at night runs. That's interesting. I was assuming maybe 6 to 9 a.m. 6 to 9 p.m. is interesting for a yeah. race. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's a fundraising event for, and families are invited. You do a one mile or 5K run and then afterwards they're offering free tours of the museum although i found out the museum is always free to visit <laughs> but maybe it's open later than usual or something i think so probably feels more special too and they're gonna have activities for kids like a fossil dig and different snacks and a photo from the past event shows at least one person in an inflatable t-rex costume as you do yeah so this museum the missouri institute of natural science is home to henry the triceratops and Henry was found in 2013 in Wyoming. Like Trix, though, I don't think we actually know that Henry was male, but she's yeah, got the nickname. Usually they're named after the person who found them or worked on them or the person's dog. <laughs> Any number of reasons. Well, in this case, it's named after the director of the museum, Matt Forer's son, Henry. There you go. So, yeah. And Henry's now on display at the museum. Henry's about 40% complete, and they're filling in the gaps with 3D prints. They're doing ongoing preservation and restoration work. So you can kind of see it as it's happening when you're visiting, and then 
eventually, I think when they're done, they'll probably have a paper that tells us a lot of information. Cool. Yeah. You think in general, dinosaur gendered names have nothing to do with the gender of the dinosaur. Yeah. It's all like correct to call them it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like Sue is an it, not a she, but we make that mistake all the time because it's hard not to. Yeah. Oh, but one fun thing about how this museum came to be is because the director said his house couldn't hold his fossil collection. And then he wanted it to be free so anybody could come in. Does that mean that they had this Triceratops in their house? No, I think Henry came later. Okay. So that would be a lot to handle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Triceratops heads are like, I don't know. Six feet long. And very wide. I don't know if you could fit them. I guess you could probably fit it into a garage. but So heavy. Unless you have big double doors you can get a forklift through or something. I'm, uh, it's going to be tricky to get a Triceratops into a house. In Jensen, Utah, Dinosaur National Monument is reopening the Quarry Exhibit Hall on May 1st. Oh, nice. Yeah. I think I remember you saying that it was open except for that. Yeah. Which is like, what's the point? But that's great. Yeah, there's still a point, but that is my favorite part at least. Actually, it's probably most people's because apparently they get annual visits of 300,000 to 325,000 people and 90% of those people go to the quarry exhibit hall. What 10% of people don't go? I guess you do have to like buy a ticket, I think, and then take like a a brief walk. Or maybe a tram. I can't remember exactly how we got there. I think you could do either way. It is up a slight hill. Maybe if you got there and you really didn't have enough time to get there or maybe if they're at some kind of capacity limit Mm -hmm. but yeah that's the i think that's the whole reason dinosaur national monument is a monument it's because of that exhibit hall yeah (laughs) but if you're there for hiking or other reasons that's true that's a good point you could go through it on the way to a hike Mm -hmm. if you are completely disinterested in dinosaurs (laughs) i don't think anybody listening to this podcast would skip the exhibit hall though (laughs) yeah that's true so the Cory Exhibit Hall, they're going to have this time ticket system to reduce crowds. This is only temporary, though. I feel like it was timed before, but maybe it wasn't. No, I don't think it was. But they're doing that because it's indoors. Most of our listeners probably already know, I think we've, and we've definitely talked about the Cory Exhibit Hall a lot on this show, but it's this vertical wall with 1,500 dinosaur bones and fossils. Yeah, they're still in a cliff, and then they built like a three-sided building up against the cliff, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. There's like lots of sauropods, there's oh, yeah. some stegosaur. There's this one Camarasaurus that really stood out to me. Yeah, yeah, because it's got like the neck and the skull mm-hmm. in situ. I think it's actually maybe a juvenile. The skull doesn't look that big. There's a cool interactive display where you can kind of see what the different stuff there is. Mm-hmm. There's lots of good stuff. It's nice that people can visit again. Yeah. In Texas, the city McAllen's going to have a Dinos and Dragons Adventure Park from now until May 15th huh. It's at the McAllen Convention Center. They said they're having 114 dinosaurs and dragons on display, but it also said there's some interactive dragons. It seemed to be a lot more about the dragons than the dinosaurs. Maybe to show they kind of look alike. I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Yeah, oh, because there's also an outdoor drive-in theater with dragon movies. So, yeah, it definitely sounds like more dragons than dinosaurs, but maybe there's more dinosaur animatronics than dragons? Could be. There are some pretty good dragon movies. There are better dinosaur movies, though. Yeah. We're obviously biased, but yeah. I think the best dinosaur movies might be expensive to license, though. It's probably cheaper to get some dragon movies. Yeah, could be. 
Maybe you can get some shorts, like Gertie. <laughs> well, yeah, that one's in public domain. Mm-hmm. You can screen that anytime. I think it's only like five minutes. And it's silent, so you don't have to worry about all that troublesome, how do you get the audio to the people in the drive through <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And then next, if you're uh, looking for places to go, specifically to dig for dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals, St. Louis Post-Dispatch shared five places that you can do that. We've talked about some of these before, but they include Paleo Adventures in South Dakota. That's for people who are over age 10, and they do groups of 12. There's Montana Dinosaur Center in Bynum, Montana, which has groups of between 5 to 10 people, and that's the one we've talked about the most because that's the only one we've gone to to (laughs) dig for dinosaurs. There's the Wyoming Dinosaur Center in Thermopolis, Wyoming, in the Morrison Formation. There's Mazelands Community College in Tucumcari, New Mexico, where you can take a hands-on paleontology course for five days. We stopped there in one of our cross-country drives. We did. And you sat on the back of a dinosaur sculpture of some sort. Oh, yeah. I think we got a mug, too. Yeah. It's a good mug. Mm -hmm. And then the last one they listed is Odyssey Traveler, where you can go to Argentina, China, or Mongolia for two to three weeks. They take six to 12 adults. Wow. Yeah. If you go to Mongolia, you can dig. And then if you go to Argentina and China, you go to discovery sites and museums. At first, I thought you were saying, because it's called Odyssey Traveler, Mm -hmm. that you would go to Argentina, China, and Mongolia. In a really roundabout route. Yeah. Unlike some sort of massive odyssey that takes multiple weeks (laughs) (laughs) i think that would take longer than three weeks yeah it sounds like it would probably be very expensive too yeah but it's cool i didn't know about some of these options before yeah definitely want to make it to argentina and china before too long and mongolia Mm -hmm. and then last universal studios hollywood recently updated jurassic world the ride nice i feel like we've heard about this a couple times They keep updating. Oh, really? Because the ride only opened in 2019. It used to be Jurassic Park, the ride. Jurassic World, the ride. And then it was, wasn't there like a raptor thing for a while too? Or was that just next to it? The raptor I think the raptors are in Florida. This is in California. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So this ride now, they've got new scenes. They've got more realistic dinosaurs and a full-bodied Indominus Rex. Wow. Because I guess before it was just the head. That's big. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can see in the front, you know, there's more decorations. You see some gyrospheres and some compies. You can't get in the gyrosphere, though. I don't think so. Oh. I think you just look at it while What's you're in line. It just taunts you. <laughs> look how much fun you could have if you could get in this and hang out with the ankylosaurs. I think it's a broken gyrosphere. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's less taunting then. Yeah. <laughs> and then... You know, that's the ride where you've got the big drop at the end. So right before the drop, the end scene has the full-body Indominus Rex fighting T-Rex now. Oh, I see. Yeah, because it used to be like a T-Rex roared at you or something. Mm -hmm. That scares you right before it takes a picture, so your picture looks all weird. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the Indominus, it's 55 feet long. Wow. Yeah. They have it flexing its arms and claws and even blinking eyes, so lots of animatronics. That's cool. Yeah. I feel like I thought the last time I was there was just a screen with a T-Rex on it. But maybe it was an actual T-Rex head and I just am misremembering. But yeah. the a pl- long time ago. The place I'm thinking of, I can't imagine how they would fit a 55 foot long animatronic there. So yeah, must be redesigned. Mm-hmm. There's a video showing people going through the ride and it's pretty impressive. You get a real sense of scale, especially I can imagine being in the boat 
below the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs must seem ginormous. Yeah, because it's sort of like a rafting or like a log ride or one of those watery ones, right? Yeah, it's the watery one here in a boat. Yeah, so I guess people can try it out now because the park reopened April 15th. Huh. I'm guessing at limited capacity, probably like Disneyland and all that. Probably. But since it's outdoors, yeah. Hey, if you're vaccinated, it's probably a good time to go because the lines are probably short. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Urketu, which was a request from Gordon Adon and Jackie Cephalosaurus via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It was a Samphospondylin, a titanosauriform sauropod that lived in the late Cretaceous and what is now Mongolia in the bayan Shire Formation. So it looks pretty titanosaur-like. It's got the columnar legs and a very long neck. And it had a really long neck relative to its body size that's based on its elongate cervical vertebrae. The neck's estimated to be twice as long as its body. We don't know how many vertebrae it had in the neck, only that each one was very long. But Daniel Sepka, who was one of the authors who described the dinosaur, estimated there were 14 or 15 vertebrae. That's not that many for... A sauropod. Some of them have like 20. But the vertebra lengths ranged from 6.3 inches, 160 millimeters, to 19.2 inches, 489 millimeters long. Yeah, so they they made the most of the fewer vertebrae. Yeah. (laughs) That's a long neck. Yes. And it had air cavities in the neck, and the larger vertebrae had a V-shaped notch. So these cervical neural spines were deeply bifurcated in vertebra 5 through 9. Urketu was described in 2006 by Daniel Sepka and Mark Norrell. And Sepka said, quote, it's almost like having a bungee cord holding the neck up. And Norrell said, quote, on the weirdo index, this is pretty weird. (laughs) Interesting. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's because of the long neck. So no skull was found, but Urketu was herbivorous and it was probably a high browser because of its long neck. The type species is Urketu elisoni. So the genus name is after Urketu, a form of the god Tangre from Mongolian shamanism. And Urketu Tangre is the mighty Tangre, a creator god who called Yasuge, the father of Genghis Khan, into being. And the species name is in honor of Mick Ellison for his contributions to ongoing American Museum of Natural History dinosaur research. The fossils were found during a field expedition in 2002 and 2003 as part of an American Museum of Natural History and Mongolian Academy of Sciences expedition. And when they found the fossils, they found a new locality, Borgouve, in the bayan Shire Formation. So even though it was described in 2006, there were referred fossils that were described in 2010, and those were three more cervical vertebrae that was found in 2003. So in total, the fossils include eight cervical vertebrae, 
So they first found cervical vertebrae 1 through 5 articulated, then they found a partial 6th, and then later they found three more articulated cervical vertebrae, 7, 8, and 9. So it's good they found them all in order. They also found part of the right sternum, tibia, and fibula with the astragalus and calcaneum, the ankle and heel bones. Urketu is one of the first sauropods described from the bayan Chiray Formation. It's estimated to be 49 feet or 15 meters long and weigh 11,000 pounds, though no dorsal vertebrae has been found, but the hind limb material helped with their estimates. The right hind limb bones found are similar to Gobi Titan, a titanosaur form found in China. Makes sense. It's close. Mm-hmm. Although that doesn't always make much of a difference. Sometimes they're completely different. True. The fibula was longer than the tibia, but it was broken at the end. Urketu is a close relative of Euhelipus, a sauropod found in China with forelimbs longer than its hind limbs. Maybe that's partly why they think it was a high browser, because if it has a close relative with longer forelimbs than hind limbs, it gives it more of like an upright posture. Oh, good point. But also just a really long neck. Although I guess some sauropods had long necks and they still were like a mower type thing. Yeah, exactly. Although this one isn't that long. It's interesting. It's only 49 feet long, even though its neck sounds like it was about 20 feet or so. Yeah, that's true. But it's still a very long neck. And it lived near lakes and rivers on a floodplain in a semi-arid climate. See, I told you that word semi-arid comes up a lot in climates. But this is Mongolia again. Oh, good point. And other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place included the Dromaeosaur, Echilobator, the Hadrosauroid, Gobihadros, the Ankylosaur, Talarurus, and Therizinosaurus, Erlichosaurus, and Segnosaurus. And many others. Yes. And it was found with fossilized fruits that resemble okra. Huh. I don't like okra. But it's really interesting. You don't hear about fossilized fruits too much. <laughs> yeah. Or dinosaurs maybe eating okra. Yeah. You skipped one. No. I see in your notes it also says that it was found near turtles. Oh, I thought we ended on a good note with the fruit. <laughs> I see what you do. You try to skip <laughs> skip over the, the potential murderous tendencies of the sauropod and its turtles. Nah. They're probably just both going after the okra, like fruits. Or maybe the sauropod was luring them in with mm. okra. No, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day... I just completely stole from Susanna Maidment in her online talk last Thursday at the Royal Tyrrell Museum because it was excellent. Mm -hmm. She is basically the leading expert on stegosaurs. So this should be no surprise if you're familiar with her work that the fun fact is about stegosaurs. And it's that stegosaurus had alternating plates, not pairs of plates, like it was sometimes depicted in early drawings and mounts Mm -hmm. of stegosaurus which you may already know. It's sort of common knowledge-ish. However, other stegosaurs have been recovered with pairs of plates, or at least they appear to have pairs of plates. So stegosaurus had really large plates for a stegosaur. Basically, the largest plates of any stegosaur are on stegosaurus, mm-hmm. sort of like the, the largest club tail of any ankylosaurus on ankylosaurus. It's what they're known for. Yeah. But Other stegosaurs have really, really small plates by comparison. They're much, much smaller, and they don't even take up that much of the back, really, at all. They're just sort of like a fraction of the back has plates on them. Sometimes they're 
better known by their shoulder spikes and other ossifications. Exactly. Yeah. Steg- she pointed out Stegosaurus is kind of unusual for not having big shoulder spikes compared with most Stegosaurs. But the thing about the plates is they do change size as you sort of progress along the back, just like with Stegosaurs. You know, they have the tallest ones on kind of the mid back, sort of near the hips, and then they get smaller as they go down the tail, and they're also smaller by the neck and head. The same can be true. There's different patterns of sizes on different stegosaurs, but they seem to match up as they go along. So there's sort of two identical sized plates on some of these other stegosaurs. So it looks like as you progress down the back, there are the pairs of like, like the same size as you move along hmm. rather than stegosaur where they're sort of just all over the place and they're massive and crazy. What was going on with that stegosaurus? I don't know. But it's really interesting that for a long time, people thought stegosaurus had paired plates. And then we might have even said in the past that stegosaurs didn't have paired plates, but actually a lot of stegosaurs seemed to. They also had these big shoulder spikes that stegosaurus didn't have. Mm -hmm. So stegosaurus is kind of the weirdo and it's kind of screwing up our depiction of what other stegosaurs may have looked like. Uh, I still love them. Oh, stegosaurus is great. Yeah, probably because of spike, but also because their plates might have, they might have blushed through their plates. Yeah, there's so much cool stuff with their plates. We have a big replica stegosaurus plate, which is one of my favorite pieces of paleontology, really, period. Maybe someday we'll get a thagomizer to go with it. (laughs) If nothing else, then to say, hey, check out the sweet thagomizer that I have. It's just a fun word. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of Vino Dino. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our community at patreon.com slash I know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time.